You're listening to the City Church Tallahassee podcast. For more information about City Church, please visit us online at citychurchtallahassee.com. Hey, good morning. Good to be gathered together this morning. My name is Dean, the pastor at City Church. We're going through the whole Bible in a year, a different book of the Bible, sometimes two combined, uh, 66 books of the Bible in 52 weeks. We're getting after it, and I think it's been really good for our church to jump into the scriptures. I think one of the most important things as believers, if not the most important thing, is we're people who know our Bibles, who understand our Bibles, so we're going through the whole storyline of the scriptures. Uh, before I pray, uh, just for the sake of overcommunication, I just want to make sure everyone just remembers and is aware uh, that Tom Brady won his seventh Super Bowl. So just wanted to throw that out there. Thank you. Uh, so just over communication, just want to be good communicators and make sure everybody's on the same page, that everybody's aware of that and remember. So uh, let's uh, pray together. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for your word. What a gift it is that we have the scriptures, the words of our God. Uh, we ask we found faithful that you'll search our hearts, as your word says, that we just won't be hearers of your word, but doers, that we will believe the hard truths of the scripture that might seem hard for us, but they're all in your perfect sovereign plan as the one who is always good. Uh, so I ask we the other churches in our city as they gather this morning, that we'll all be faithful to your word, that we'll preach the scriptures, that could be enemy out of this place, out of our city, and out of our churches. And we ask this all in the name of Jesus. Amen. So out of the gate, a quick just sort of kickoff for Joshua. The Gospel Coalition kind of summarizes this, the book like this. Uh, Joshua will teach us about the unfailing promises of God springing from his unfailing faithfulness. It will teach us about the justice of God against sin, very important, and also the great mercy of God towards sinners. So we're going to see God's justice towards sin and God's mercy towards sinners. We finished the Pentateuch, that's the first five books of the Bible, and now we're moving on to a whole new section, whole new phase, whole new plan of the scriptures. And through the story of Joshua, it's important to know that God is advancing his promise to bless the people with the land that he has given them that he's already set apart and set aside for them to possess and to have and to be his people, a spiritual nation in that land. And he's going to do this, God's going to do this through the leadership of his man Joshua, and the, the people are called more than anything else to entrust themselves to God's word, to put themselves under the authority of what it is that God has said to them, not under their own authority, not under their own ideas, but under what God has actually said. More important than what do I I think, or what does it mean to me, is what has God actually said and told us. Uh, about that, here's what we're told. After the death of Moses, we're getting a little history here, uh, the Lord's servant, the Lord spoke to Joshua, son of Nun, Moses' assistant. Uh, so that is the setting here. Moses is, my servant is dead. Now you and all the people prepare to cross over the Jordan to the land I am giving the Israelites. I have given you every place where the sole of your foot treads. Just as, again, God keeps his word, just as I promised Moses. Your territory, gets very specific, will be from the wilderness in Lebanon to the great river, the Euphrates River, all the land of the Hittites and west to the Mediterranean Sea. No one will be able to stand against you as long as you live. Why? Because you're savvy, because you're strategic, because you're gifted. No. Why? Because I will be with you. Just as I was with Moses, I will not leave you or abandon you. A few verses later, he tells them to meditate on God's word day and night, that by it they will live. Now Moses to Joshua, as he was mentoring him and to others concerning his word, he said in the book of Deuteronomy, for they are not meaningless God's words. They're not meaningless words to you, but they are your life. 
and by them you will live long in the land you are crossing the Jordan to possess. So the historical setting for the book is that Moses is dead, and this tiny little marker there indicates the situation of God's people. Forty years had now passed since the actual exodus from Egypt, years spent wandering in the wilderness, being punished for their sin, being shown the mercy of God, making massive mistakes like building a golden calf. I mean, these people, so many things, they see the Red Sea part by God. They've experienced so much already, and because of their faithlessness and not believing God, that first generation did not get the opportunity to see the promised land. So here we are, the next generation, the descendants, God's promise still in play for Abraham's descendants, and now it's go time to inherit the land. I mean, it's like kickoff, the stadium's full, they've lined up to go kick off the ball, you know, people are, are, are swag surfing, I mean, it's time to go. Like, it's go time, we're officially here to go into the promised land that, was, that God had given them. Verse 10, then God commanded the officers of the people, go through the camp and tell the people, get provisions ready for yourselves. For within three days you will be crossing the Jordan to go in and take possession of the land the Lord your God is giving you to inherit. I don't even know what we have that's even close to that. It's like you're three days away from a generational promise. Like imagine that. These people had seen it all, they had heard it all, their ancestors had experienced it, and now here's what it was all about. They're getting ready to actually do it. The countdown is on. And we get excited for things like three more days till my birthday or three more days till the Super Bowl. Guessing Tom Brady's in it, just a guess. You know, three more days till that. You know, three more days till I turn 16 and get my license. Three more days till college graduation, till retirement. I mean, nothing even remotely compares. So here we are, three days. And now we're getting ready to go in to the Jordan. We're going to cross it and it's going to happen. So chapter one would flow easily into chapter three. Sync together, just rolling through the story, telling us how it's all gonna go down. In Joshua two, it, it seems at first like a random insert. We kind of like go off the trail for a minute, almost like a rabbit trail to tell a little side story, but actually that little side story is one of my favorite stories in all the scriptures. We're gonna be introduced to someone named Rahab. We see that Joshua's son of Nun secretly sent two men as spies from the Acacia Grove, saying, go and scout the land, especially Jericho. We're getting ready to go in. Go check it out. So they left, and they came to the house of a prostitute named Rahab and stayed there. Now, that was the rest of the scripture. It'd be like, oh, interesting. Uh, but it's not. If that was out of context, there could be a lot translated from there. Uh, but the king of Jericho was told, look, some of the Israelite men have come here tonight to investigate the land. Apparently, word travels fast. Uh, the king was nervous. Then the king of Jericho sent word to Rahab. I'm like, wonder how we knew her, side note, and said, bring out the men who came to you and entered your house, for they came to investigate the entire land. That was her instructions from the king's people. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. So she said, yes, the men did come to me, but I didn't know where they were from. At nightfall, when the city gate was about to close, the men went out, and I don't know where they were going. Chase after them quickly, and you can catch up with them. But she had taken them up to the roof and hidden them among the stalks of the flax that she had arranged on the roof. The men pursued them along the road to the forge of the Jordan, and as soon as they left to pursue them, the city gate was shut. Before the men fell asleep, she went up on the roof and said to them, I know the Lord has given you this land. 
well, she has more faith about the land than the actual people of Israel do at times. And that the terror of you has fallen on us. And everyone who lives in the land is panicking because of you. Like, we've heard about your God. We've heard about what you've been doing. If we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to Sihon and Og, the two Amorite kings you completely destroyed across the Jordan, when we heard this, we lost heart, and everyone's courage failed because of you. For the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on earth below, a confession of who God is. Now please swear to me by the Lord that you will also show kindness to my father's family because I showed kindness to you. Give me a sure sign that you will spare the lives of my father, mother, brothers, sisters, and all who belong to them and save us from death. The men answered her, we will give our lives for yours if you don't report our mission. We will show kindness and faithfulness to you when the Lord gives us the land. Then she let them down by a rope through the window since she lived in a house that was built into the wall of the city. Go to the hill country so that the men pursuing you won't find you, she said to them. Hide there for three days until they return afterward. Go your way. Again, from one to three chapters, it just kind of continues. And this story is really in the big scheme of things. Isn't, it's, it's some nice information, but it's not that necessary just from like a the chronological what's happening in the fall of Jericho kind of approach. So when the spies enter Jericho and meet Rahab, she tells them what she's heard. She's heard of the great deliverance and the battles that Israelites have won because of their God. It's reasonable to think that the spies are actually sent for the purpose of Rahab being saved and not merely to bring back information. I mean, think about it. Joshua didn't need to have some kind of savvy plan to take over the city for this conquest. God would give him the plan. He knew that was coming. Perhaps, I don't think it's reading too much into this text, that God orchestrated the sending of the spies in order to save a woman named Rahab and her family. Like everyone in the city, we're told, was afraid, including the king. But Rahab's fear, rather than maybe keeping her from being able to you know, be activated or maybe debilitating her, that kind of fear, it caused her in faith. That fear led to faith, to believe in the God of Israel, and to actually submit herself to the Lord. We see her confession of Yahweh, the God of Israel, that he is the God, he's the God of heaven and earth, and then she makes an appeal to be saved. She makes an appeal. Confession of God and an appeal to be saved. That's what our conversion is like as Christians. We believe that God is actually the one he claimed to be. We understand our need to be saved, our need to be forgiven, because we've ultimately sinned against him. We believe that God, in his grace, rather than punishing us as our sins deserved, that Jesus stepped in our place as a perfect one and took on the death that we deserve to reconcile us to God. We also see the gospel here going to a Gentile, like going to a Canaanite from Jericho. We see the gospel is bigger than it's not about a certain ethnic group. No, it's a promise that is received by faith for all who will come to humble themselves before God and acknowledge who he is and their need. And so I don't think this is just a pragmatic decision. She wasn't just trying to get hooked up, you know, from, from not having to go to really die in Jericho. She wasn't just trying to get on the side of the good, uh, of the good guys in the story. 
she, in fact, would join the Israelites, not just escape from Jericho, she would join them, eventually marrying into the tribe of Judah. And God definitely blessed her. She's included in the family line of Israel's kings all the way to Jesus. Rahab made the first page of the New Testament. Like this Rahab. We see in the book of Hebrews, people call it the hall of faith. That by faith, Rahab the prostitute welcomed the spies in peace and didn't perish with those who obeyed. A common question might be, well, didn't Rahab lie? And isn't that bad? Isn't that sinful to maybe to lie about something? Well, God didn't see it that way. That God is good in some ways, his ways aren't our ways, and here he is in this moment. He is using this for his glory to make his saving power known. Look at the book of James. James is talking about, I want to put it in context here, how our faith should be evidenced by our works. So our works don't save us, but they're the evidence that we have been justified. He says, in the same way, wasn't Rahab the prostitute also justified by works and receiving the messengers and sending them out by a different route? Here she continues to come up in the scriptures hundreds and hundreds of years later. And in almost every mention of her in the Bible, Rahab is still called the prostitute, which is interesting. Now you might go, well, is God holding us over her head? Is this like a reminder of her shame? And actually, that's not what's happening at all. Her shame and her guilt was actually wiped away by the grace of God. What he's letting us know is that he's not ashamed to be her God. That yeah, this is her story, but God changed her story. It's a reminder of God's faithfulness that no one is too far out of God's saving power and grace. But here he is going to a Gentile, Canaanite prostitute. And she is the one that appears in the story of who will be saved. Because she confessed who God is and her need for him. He's not holding her, holding her past over her head. Rather, letting the reader understand the grace and power of God. I love this from Barbara Ann Kelly. God has been working out his purposes in and through his chosen people throughout history. God called a nation of hard-hearted slaves out of Egypt and winnowed out the unbelievers through 40 years of wilderness wandering. In Joshua 2, they stand at the brink of entering the promised land, but first, in his great mercy, he will save Rahab the prostitute, a God-fearing woman. It's almost like I'm about to make my promises known and my promises finally realized by the Israelite people in Rahab about my grace and mercy. I want you to be the first to know. I just love that story. That's why I put some more time on it than any other part of Joshua during the sermon. I love that story. And it's true for you and it's true for me. That God's grace is massive and it's for all of us. So then we get to the crossing of the Jordan River. And God gave very specific instructions. The Ark of the Covenant would go first. That was a sign of his presence with them. A continual symbol also that God's doing all the work. And we see this, that Joshua told the Israelites, come closer and listen to the words of the Lord your God. Again, it all goes back to God's word. He says, he said, you will know that the living God is among you, and that he will certainly dispossess you before you, before you the Canaanites, Hittites, Hivites, Perizzites, Girgashites, Amorites, and Jebusites. Whew. When the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of the whole earth goes ahead of you into the Jordan. Now choose 12 men from the tribes of Israel, one man for each tribe. When the feet of the priests who carry the Ark of the Lord, 
the Lord of the whole earth, come to, the, come to rest in the Jordan's water, its water will be cut off. The water flowing downstream will stand up in a mass. When the people broke camp to cross the Jordan, the priests carried the Ark of the Covenant ahead of the people. Now the Jordan overflows its banks throughout the harvest season. But as soon as the priests carrying the ark reached the Jordan, their feet touched the water at its edge, and the water flowing downstream stood still. Here's the Jordan River, and God's showing them, here's what I'm doing, like, I'm the one, I gotcha. Rising up in a mass that extended as far as Adam and the city of Zarethan. The water flowing downstream into the sea and the Ereba and the Dead Sea was completely cut off, and the people crossed opposite Jericho. He's like, remember the, remember the Red Sea? And you had people coming after you then. This is just me opening it up again, another one, and going, go get it. I, I have you. I'm leading you through the waters. The priest carrying the Ark of the Lord's Covenant stood firmly on dry ground in the middle of the Jordan while all Israel crossed on dry ground until the entire nation had finished crossing the Jordan. It's go time. And here we see these 12 stones, one for each tribe. God wants them to remember his faithfulness and they're crossing the Jordan. Because the purpose of all of this was for the nation would continue keeping, the spiritual nation would continue keeping their eyes on God. So you want them to remember what he has done for them. And not just themselves, but for future generations. And Joshua set up in Gilgal the 12 stones they had taken from the Jordan. And he said to the Israelites, in the future when your children ask their fathers, what is the meaning of these stones? You should tell your children, Israel crossed the Jordan on dry ground, for the Lord your God dried up the water, dried up the water of the Jordan before you until you had crossed over, just as the Lord your God did to the Red Sea. Patterns of faithfulness, which he dried up before us until we had crossed over. This is so that all the people of the earth may know the Lord's hand is strong, so they will know the greatness of our God, and so you may always fear the Lord your God. What's happening here? This is a good moment for them, and he wants them to remember. But even the good moments where we remember God's faithfulness, that should be what allows us to keep faith during the dark moments. Because they're going to have a lot of dark moments. But you know what they can do? They can look back to the Jordan. And they can say, remember those stones. Remember what God has done. God has not forgotten about us. Are our circumstances bad? Yes. May they change? I'm not really sure. But God's promise remains that he has a people and we are it. We are safe in his arms. He has us. We're to respond to that in faith. Not just when things are going great, where it's like, woo, put up the stones, we're doing awesome. But to look back on those stones when things are dark. That's why we take the Lord's Supper here so, many, so often. It's not the exact same thing as the 12 stones, but it's a type of that. I don't want to force that, that, that comparison, but it's our way of acknowledging God's ultimate faithfulness through Christ, the covenant of the blood, his body that was given for us. We look back and remember that the worst thing that's ever happened to us has already happened. We were separated from God. And now because of God's grace, we're now part of his family. And when things aren't going well, and when things are going well, we still look back and we can say, great is our God. He is faithful. So now a new generation was going forward. This was the new generation of God's people, the ones that you know, their parents, their ancestors had sinned against God, had worshipped idols, had doubted God, but the promise remains through that family, through this generation, and after the entire nation had been circumcised, being prepared to go forward, uh, being the, the signs of God's people that he had instrumented, they stayed where they were in the camp until they recovered. It takes a little while. 
The Lord then said to Joshua, today I've rolled away the disgrace of Egypt from you. Like you're not defined by that. You are, you're not slaves anymore. Like you are now a freed, liberated people. Therefore, that place is still called Gagal today. Then we see that what's called the commander of the Lord's army, which might be a Christ figure. Uh, it could be uh, what's it's called a, theo- a, theo- a theophany, uh, which is a kind of a symbolism representation of God. It also could be just a messenger uh, that is maybe similar to the burning bush where, where God in the bush appeared to Moses. A little bit different than that, but that kind of idea because the same language is used. We see when Joshua was near Jericho, he looked up and saw a man standing in front of him with a drawn sword in his hand. Joshua approached him and asked, are you for us or for our enemies? Neither, he replied. I have now come, like, I'm not, I'm not you know, enslaved to anyone. I'm not under the authority of anyone. Like, God is God. I have now come as commander of the Lord's army. Then Joshua bowed his face to the ground in homage and asked him, what does my Lord want to say to his servant? The commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, remove the sandals from your feet. For the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did that time of worship a time of remembrance before God before they would go in and take the land. So we get to Jericho, a very famous story in the Bible, a very kind of non-conventional takeover where usually people would go in screaming and yelling, they'd have all their weapons, and they'd go charge and take over the city. God instead has them through seven days walk around the city seven times. He has this long process of silence. They're not even making any noise. And this might sound foolish. I don't know. They're probably thinking, what is he doing But the passivity of this Jericho conquest shows the people didn't do any of this by their own strength. It was all by the grace of God. When I was a kid, I remember singing in Sunday school, Joshua fought the battle of Jericho. And they would build up like little blocks all around us, like a little city. And we'd all walk around in a circle and you say, Joshua fought the battle of Jericho. And you walk around like this. And then you get to the end of the song and say, and the walls came tumbling down. I'm going to sing it Easter in case you all didn't know. And then... At the Civic Center, and then I knocked over the walls. All the kids would do that, and that was like the lesson of it. Isn't it funny how not only do we put hand sanitizer on our hands a hundred times a day, but like to sanitize the Bible as well and make some of these kids' stories. Like Noah's Ark is like a toy for some people. Like they have an ark set with little people in it. It's like that's when God destroyed the world. Have fun, play date. You know, it's just like. And we almost can do the same thing with Joshua because this is actually about to be a very, like not even PG-13, like pretty adult scene here in terms of the violence that's about to come. Because, but the city and everything in it are set apart to the Lord for destruction. It's not like the walls came down and we said, hey, we're here to visit. It's like, no, only Rahab the prostitute, there she is, and everyone with her in the house will live, promise kept, because she hid the messengers we sent. But keep yourselves from the things set apart or you will be set apart for destruction. If you take any of those things, like the treasures of the city, you will set apart the camp of Israel for destruction and make trouble for it. This is God telling them this. For all the silver and gold and the articles of bronze and iron are dedicated to the Lord and must go into the Lord's treasury. They're not for you to grab. Like, we're not looting here, okay? You don't get to, like, take these home and put them on eBay or go to a pawn shop. That's not allowed. So the troops shouted, because they're Jerichos, right? So the troops shouted and the ram's horn sounded. When they heard the blast of the ram's horn, the troops gave a shout. The troops gave a shout and the walls collapsed. The troops advanced into the city, each man straight ahead, and they captured the city. That's where Sunday school ended. Next verse. They completely destroyed everything in the city with the sword, every man and woman. 
both young and old, and every ox, sheep, and donkey. Except for Rahab and her family, who is the chosen remnant by grace, who by faith would be spared from God's wrath against sin and idolatry of the people who were not his own, the one true God of Israel. We see they burn the city and everything in it. They put the silver and the gold and the articles of bronze and iron into the treasury of the Lord's house, as they were told. However, Joshua spared Rahab the prostitute, her father's family, and all who belonged to her because she hid the messengers. Joshua had spent, sent to spy on Jericho, and she still is in Israel with the people of God to this day. We see the Lord was with Joshua, and his fame spread throughout the land. So things are rolling. But then what happens? Immediately in the next chapter, the next verse, the people forget. They believe there's more to be gained by disobeying God than there is to be gained by obeying him. We get to Achan and his sin. The Israelites, however, were unfaithful regarding the things set apart for destruction. Achan, son of Carmi, son of Zabdi, son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, took some of what was set apart. What was he told not to do? Take the things that were set apart. What did he do? Took the things that were set apart. And the Lord's anger burned against the Israelites. Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is near Bethaven, east of Bethel, and told them, go up and scout the land. So the men went up and scouted Ai. After returning to Joshua, they reported to him, don't send all the people, but send about 2,000 or 3,000 men to attack Ai. Since the people of Ai are so few, like we can start the walk-ons. Like give them their chance to shine. Like put in Rudy, right? I mean, it's that kind of idea. Don't wear out all the people there. So about 3,000 men went up there, but they fled from the men of Ai. The men of Ai struck down about 36 of them and chased them from outside the city gate to the quarry, striking them down on the descent. As a result, the people lost heart. Then Joshua tore his clothes, a sign of mourning, and fell face down to the ground before the ark of the Lord until everything, as did the elders of Israel. They all put dust on their heads. Oh, Lord God, Joshua said, why did you even bring these people across the Jordan to hand us over to the Amorites? For our destruction was like Jericho pretend? If only we had been content to remain on the other side of the Jordan. It wasn't ideal, but it was better than getting destroyed. What can I say, Lord, now that Israel has turned its back and run from its enemies? When the Canaanites, remember our opponents here who are occupying our land, these idol worshipers, and all who live in the land hear about this, they will surround us and wipe out our name from the earth. Then what will you do about your great name? They're going to mock our God and mock us. The Lord said to Joshua, stand up. Why have you fallen face down? This isn't about any of that. It's about the fact that y'all sinned. Israel has sinned. They violated my covenant that I appointed for them. They've taken some what was set apart. That's simple. They've stolen, deceived, and put these things to their own belongings. This is why the Israelites cannot stand against their enemies. They will turn their backs and run from their enemies because they have been set apart for destruction. I will no longer be with you unless you remove from among you what is set apart. You must repent. You must turn from your wicked ways. Go and consecrate the people. Like, let's go through this process of being repentive and by faith resetting ourselves as God's people. Tell them to consecrate themselves for tomorrow. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. There are things that are set apart among you, Israel. You will not be able to stand against your enemies until you remove what is set apart. You've got to get your sin out of the camp. In the morning, present yourselves tribe by tribe. The tribe the Lord selects is to come forward clan by clan. The clan the Lord selects is to come forward family by family. The family the Lord selects is to come forward man by man. 
The one who is caught with the thing set apart must be burned along with everything he has because he has violated the Lord's covenant and committed an outrage. So all Israel stoned them to death, we see. But that is what happened. They burned their bodies, threw stones on them, and raised over him a large pile of rocks that remains still today. And the Lord turned from his burning anger. Therefore, the place is called the Valley of Achor still today. Now, what's going on here? Like, why did God have to make them all, like, go forward and say their names? And doesn't God know these things? Like, he knows who did it? Well, yeah, of course he does. He's God. He wants people to see that sin is serious business. Sin is not a mistake. Sin is not a mess up. It's not a, oh, whoops. Our sin is actually against someone. It's against God. And the wages of sin, I have a Bible that has like little notes on each side and on the pages where I can, as I read through the Bible, I can make my notes. And actually, after I read the story, I just wrote next to my Bible, the wages of sin is death. That's always been true. That the wages of sin is death. But we also see grace here. God's wrath was appeased, and then immediately he's consecrating. The Lord said to Joshua, don't be afraid or discouraged. Take all the troops with you and go attack Ai. Look, I've handed over to you the king of Ai, his people, city, and land. Like, I've already won this for you. Just, just follow me. Just obey me. He's like, go back and get him again. And they did. And God told Joshua, just to show that this is God and not them, God told Joshua to hold out the javelin in your hand towards Ai, and I'll hand over the city to you. Like, as long as you have it up, you'll win. So here's Joshua, like, holding out the javelin. And when he held it out, they went, ambushed the city, and they took it. And captured it immediately and set it on fire. When Israel had finished killing, killing everyone in the land at Ai, who had pursued them in the open country, when the, every last one of them had fallen by the sword, all of Israel returned to Ai and struck it down with the sword. The total of who fell that day, both men and women, was 12,000. All the people of Ai, Joshua did not draw back his hand that was holding the javelin until all the inhabitants of Ai were completely destroyed. Israel plundered only the cattle and spoiled that city for themselves according to the Lord's command that he had given Joshua. Joshua burned Ai, left it in a permanent ruin, still desolate to this day. He hung the body of the king of Ai on a tree until evening, and at sunset, Joshua commanded they take his body down from the tree. They threw it down at the entrance of the city gate and put a large pile of rocks over it, which still remains today. Afterwards, Joshua read aloud all the words of the law, reminding the people who they are and what God says the blessings as well as the curses, according to all that was written in the book of law. There was not a word of all that Moses had commanded that Joshua did not read for the entire assembly. And I know that there are some serious things here. We keep going through Joshua, then they got these guys, and they killed the king, burned the city, killed all the people. And it's very, I think, easy and normal to respond to that by saying, that's not really the God that I grew up learning about. Like, isn't our God a loving God? He's killing everyone. He's having everyone be killed in the city. Like, he's using the, his people to go burn cities down, not leave one person. Like the only person we've seen be left so far is Rahab and her family and all these conquests they're doing. And you might go, can you just kind of maybe help me think through that a little bit? Because it's kind of a lot to swallow. I mean, God commands Israel to slaughter the Canaanites in order to occupy the promised land. Like, total destruction. He's using his people to execute his moral judgment against people who are his enemies because of their idol worship, because of their false gods, their multiple gods. 
And it's important to understand as much as we can, and I say this humbly because I work through this stuff too, how we see God's justice and mercy and how they go together. It's first important to know that God enacts, like when he enacts this command to go destroy, it was, press, it was really, it was preceded by a long period, a long period of divine patience and long suffering in the face of so much Canaanite wickedness sexual immorality, idolatry, injustice, including the sacrifice of children. Some of the very things that, uh, that, he, that, that his own people would be killed for because of their sins, because the wages of sin is death. These people were given 400 years by God to repent of their sins. 400 years. And still stubbornness, blasphemy, idol worship, the wages of sin continues to be death. And the Lord said to Abraham in Genesis chapter 15, this is hundreds of years before, the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. Also before that promise to Abraham, there was a flood. There was a flood. My friend Brian and I were talking about this text, and he said, yeah, it's interesting that we really struggle with what happened in Joshua, but a lot of people are kind of okay with the flood. So that's a really good point. The flood that destroys, destroyed the entire earth except for one man and his family. Why? Because not because God was mean, because of their sin. Justin Taylor wrote this, as the maker of all things, we need to know this, he says, and the ruler of all people, God has absolute rights and ownership over all people in places. And what's hard is the God that's been presented to us a lot of our lives has just been a sentimental God. Like we defined his love by like Valentine's Day. Right, like Valentine's Day God. Where he just like kind of throws Valentine's at us every day and lets us know how special we are, you know, kind of thing. And I think we've actually done a disservice to God's love and God's mercy because we've been afraid to really put any work into talking about his justice. That's why we're committed here at our church to telling the whole story, the whole counsel of God, because I think it makes God's love that much greater. When we read things in the New Testament, like while we were sinners, Christ died for us. Like it gives that much more power to it. So God's not only the ultimate maker and ruler, he's also just and righteous in every single thing that he does. And it's commonplace, and I find myself doing it too in our culture to ask whether this was fair or just for God to do. But if you think about it for a minute, we're, we're asking that. It sort of declares that, that we're the judge and that we get to put the God of the universe on trial that we need to be the ones who examines him. It almost deifies us when you think about it. It doesn't mean you can't, it doesn't mean you can't have conversations and have conversations, you know, and be and, and be curious and wonder and those kind of things, but it's like if God passes the test, it's like if he conforms to our justice, our fairness, and our ideas of what's right, that everything is good, but if he doesn't, then we're upset, lose our faith. What happens is we become the ones accusing him. Deuteronomy 32 says that all God's ways are justice. So by definition, if God does it, it's just. And to think otherwise is very troubling because you're putting your mind and opinion as the ultimate standard of the universe. We're just afraid to talk about that sometimes. Here's reality, and this is just as true as true can be. All of us deserve God's justice. None of us deserve God's mercy. One of my heroes, R.C. Sproul, used to say, the moment we think we deserve mercy, it's no longer mercy. Let's put that on the screen again if we can. All of us deserve God's justice. None of us deserve God's mercy. 
And in biblical history, an act of judgment on one is often an act of mercy on another. We see the flood. Judgment on the world, mercy for Noah and his family. The Passover in Exodus. Judgment upon Pharaoh and Egypt for their sin and idolatry. Freedom, grace, mercy, liberation in, in the Lord for the people, of the Hebrew people. The destruction of the Canaanites was also an act of mercy for Israel. The people that God promised would have the land. And the Canaanites were blatant enemies of God. And do you believe they deserve to be punished? And if not, what does constitute punishment from God? Because if we don't believe they deserve to be punished, then we actually really make the cross of Christ not make very much sense. Because where we see the severity of God and the kindness of God come together, yes, we see it in the, ex, in the, in the Passover. Yes, we see it here in, the, in taking the land, but we ultimately see this in the cross. Israel's possession of the land, they were not able to receive it and kick out the Canaanites because they were better than them. He tells Israel that they needed to follow the Lord, yes, and his law. And if they didn't do it, they would suffer the same fate. What allowed them to do that was their unconditional election by God's grace for people who did not deserve it. The people of his own, they had to respond by faithfulness. The promise of God was not based on anything they had done. The really destruction of God's enemies was because of their rebellion and according to God's special purposes. It's also important to know this was not a genocide. Uh, this was not uh, an ethnic cleansing as some proponents of the Bible try to call it. Uh, that'd be an inappropriate category for this. Uh, just look at Rahab, for example. She was not a Jew. She was not a, she was not a Hebrew. She sought refuge from God in God. She, by faith, joined his people. The way we come to God is by faith. It's by faith in Christ that God's people are ultimately made. And the truth is we must be saved by God, from God, for God. We're saved by God from God's wrath towards sin, but then saved for God to go be used by him for his glory as part of his family. And we see punishments in the Bible. We see two things, really. A look back at the fall of man in Genesis, the reality of sin, but also a foreshadow of the judgment to come. If we think that Canaan and the ark were rough, one day God will judge the whole earth for their sins for all eternity, except for the people, the remnant. But those by his grace he has set apart and saved. It's important to know that the story of God's judgment is also a story of God's grace. The story of God's grace. And it should be unfathomable to us. We don't have a category for how big his grace is. We don't have an English language word for the power of the gospel. Outside of pointing people over and over again to the name of Jesus. To the name of Jesus. And if God shouldn't severely punish sin, it eliminates the purpose of the cross to begin with. That's why we see in Galatians where Paul says, if righteousness can be kept or can be obtained by keeping the law, then Jesus died for nothing. Now we do not believe that. We believe that Jesus died because of sin had to be punished and would be punished, but God in his grace spared his people. And Jesus steps in, in our place condemned. He stood rather than us. So now for us, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. So towards the end of Joshua, we see the Lord gave Israel all the land he had sworn to give their ancestors, and they took possession of it and settled there. The Lord gave them rest on every side according to all he had sworn to their ancestors. None of their enemies were able to stand against them, for the Lord handed over all their enemies to them. None of the good promises the Lord had made to the house of Israel failed. 
everything was fulfilled. And now we're waiting still for one last promise. And that is for Christ to return for his people. We can trust him that he's going to. But Joshua wasn't perfect either. And he pointed us to our need for a greater Joshua. Jesus is the fulfillment of that. I can imagine what it was like for Jesus to read the Old Testament where he would really see the shape of his own identity. This generation was definitely more faithful than the previous, but still makes mistakes. It's also important really quick to talk about the land. For us, the people of God, our land, you could say, is now the body of Christ. That is the land that we possess, the land that's given to us. There's no need for a holy land for us. In fact, because of Jesus, no land anymore is unholy. We don't need a holy land it's important also, and this might be news for some of you, and I gently present this as a sensitive topic for some reason, but 1948 Israel becoming a state is not a fulfillment of biblical prophecy uh, because it's, it was a secular state, not part of the Bible storyline. Now, I care about Israel because there's, just as an American, they're a good ally, and we're told to pay, pray for the, priest of, uh, the peace of Jerusalem, and I do all those things, but it's a secular state. The chosen, holy people of God ultimately existed to usher in a Messiah, not a nation. And he has come. So those who receive him are the chosen people of God. So the future place promised to us is in the new heavens and the new earth. So just make sure who's influenced you in those kind of conversations because Again, a secular state. That's not biblical prophecy. Spiritual land that those people inherited. There was certainly a land promise. That land promise has been fulfilled. Has been fulfilled and his name is Jesus. The body of Christ and a land that is to come for us. So a very significant place. But ultimately a place that points us somewhere else. To what we have as the body of Christ, the invisible place, and also the place that is to come, the new heavens and the new earth. So I know it's heavy, I know it's a lot but we are people whom God has spared by his grace and mercy because of his love for us. It doesn't make any sense. We don't have an English word for it. There's not a Greek word for it to fully even grasp it, understand it. There's not a Valentine. There's not, it's, just, it's just so big and so massive for our God that justly and rightly punishes sin to say, you know what? I loved you first, and while you were sinners, I've died for you. What an unbelievable thing. I made the demands, holiness, perfection, you couldn't meet them, so I met them for you in the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. And then one day I'm coming again for my people to inherit the land for all eternity. Let's pray together. Father, we are thankful for that truth, that you have a people. We acknowledge that we do not deserve to be your people, but by your grace we are. So I ask that we'll flourish in that, that we'll take great hope and, and confidence in that, that we'll put our identity in you because that's where it belongs that we'll have people who have joy because we can claim that we've been adopted by our Heavenly Father. We are your children. And I ask we'll look back at the 12 stones in our own way, even though we weren't there at that moment, but the generations would remember the faithfulness of our God. Lord, as we remember who you are and what you've done, let's see people who are cross-centered, who are resurrection-driven, and who anticipate the fact that you're coming again. Let us go and tell your story to our community that needs to hear that there is a God we are accountable to you, and you have given us the way by which sinners can be saved. In his name is Jesus Christ. That's in his name we pray. Amen. Let's stand together and sing some good news of who God is and what he's done.